0: that first year, I um, made all the startup mistakes, hiring wrong people for the wrong things, managing, not giving clear goals or targets, you know, just kind of focusing on, I think what we did have at that time was a clear vision and just a clear sense of wanting to get things done really quick, which was good. But, you know, we did in the messiest, most chaotic way imaginable, which probably took a few too many years off everyone's life than was necessary.
1: Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career, or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. In today's 40-Minute Mental episode, I speak to Brett Wigdorts, OBE, the founder of the biggest graduate recruiter in the UK, Teach First, and most recently the co-founder and CEO of Tiny. Following a long line of teachers in his family, Brett has dedicated his career to education and to making a real difference. Despite initially being told that his idea for Teach First wouldn't work, he stuck to his guns and took the business from strength to strength over 15 years, raising nearly 400 million in charitable funding. Since 2018, Brett has turned his attention to early years education, co founding Tiny, a digital startup aimed at positioning small nurseries in homes all around the country. I really enjoyed talking to Brett. He has such a wealth of knowledge about not only building a successful business, but he also gives a fascinating insight into how to shape society to give all children access to a good education. Something I'm sure we can all agree is hugely important. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the brilliant Brett Wigdortz. Brett, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'd like to get started with a quick fire CV interview, as it were, in 30 seconds. So if you don't mind, I'm going to get you to finish these questions with the first thing that comes to mind. Is that all right?
0: Sure. Yeah, of course. Thanks. Awesome.
1: So when I was younger, I always wanted to be?
0: So when I was very young, I wanted to be an astronomer, but I'd say since I was 12 or 13, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I'm actually in the right space. Awesome. We will come back to that. Favourite subject at school? I think it depended on the teacher. This is a cop-out. I I got into economics because I had a fantastic economics teacher. And it's one of the things that led me to start Teach First. I just realized, you know, whoever was the best teachers, that was the subjects I was most excited about. Awesome. What was your first job? My first job when I was a teenager, I had two jobs. I was a lifeguard and I was a a FIFA qualified uh, football referee. So I used to referee youth soccer and um, a lifeguard at the Jersey Shore, right near Asbury Park, New Jersey.
1: Incredible. It says a lot about you that you wanted to be a referee because they come in for a lot of sticks. So clearly got a lot of resilience there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's a great experience for teenagers, I think, because after being a football referee, you know, you could, yeah, whatever. You can handle the ducks back. You could deal with any criticism. It doesn't bother you. When starting my career, I wish I'd have known. I wish I would have known more about how to manage people and how to, you know, help get the best out of other people.
1: That's, yeah, that's, that's that's a really good answer. And again, um, something that I, as a business owner myself, probably would, would say the same. I started a business
0: because? So the first Teach First I started, uh, which is a charity, I started because I visited lots of schools and just thought it's just totally not fair that children have to go to these schools. No child should have to go to some of the schools I visited, I thought, and it could be a lot better. And I had seen that, you know, if you can get additional excellent talent into these schools and focus on improving these schools, then children should get what they deserve. And I just felt there's a solution there. And I was really excited to help implement that solution.
1: Amazing. Can't wait to unpack that in a bit. A motto that I live by is?
0: My daughter's just had to do this in her class and hers was, it's never too cold for an ice cream, which I thought was very deep because you could always have fun in your life. Uh, so I think my motto, so never too cold for an ice cream is not a bad motto, but um, I, I think my motto is just to always try. I like trying new things, so always try new things. Maybe that's that's another motto. Awesome,
1: awesome. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV? So whether that's a perceived failure or a setback in your career that you've learned from.
0: It's not my CV, but Teach First was turned down the first time we went to the minister. And he said his exact words were something teach first is not going to happen. You know, he completely turned it down. So I think now it's a big success and global and everything. It's easy to forget that early on we were told it would never happen. I love that.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Well, um, thank you for answering those. Quick far questions, Brett. And I I really wanted to get into your story and start probably with what you're best known for, and that's education. So you've had three very successful education businesses under your belt. You clearly have a, a, a passion for education and learning. So where does that passion come from? And were there any teachers or moments in your life that set you on this path?
0: Yeah, I mean, um, my family are almost all teachers. So my mom's a teacher, my brother's a teacher, my aunts, my uncles, my dad should have been a teacher. And he certainly loved any volunteer teaching he did. And I had some teachers that made a big difference in my life. I think it it sort of comes from this sense of fairness I have in the world where, you know, I kind of have this view that, especially in a society we all live in together as a community, you kind of want to make it as fair as possible. And it just seems if everyone doesn't have access to a great education, then you're just cutting out a whole swathe of humanity at at the knees, basically. You're not giving them any sort of opportunities in life. So it's all a bit of a sham. And to me, education is one of these like sort of building blocks of a fair society that goes with, you know, maybe healthcare and, you know, in a food and, and ensuring people have shelter. And yet in so many societies, education is is segregated by wealth or by other ways and and many children don't have the education they need to be successful and i just always got it as just this real fairness issue is where i'm coming from
1: yeah I, I couldn't i couldn't agree more did you have any big ambitions i mean clearly that you, you talked there about the, the sort of drivers behind you know why you you set off on this journey were there any particular goals you wanted achieved when you founded your companies
0: I mean, it, yeah, I would say when we so when we started Teach First, at first I thought I'd only do it for six months or a year. I was a management consultant at McKinsey, and I got a like a one-year leave of absence to get started. But I did believe actually from the very beginning it would be very big. And I remember telling people this should be the biggest graduate recruiter in the country. This should be massive. And I remember writing a paper about that in our first few months, and people, you know, thought that was pretty amusing at the time. But I, I, I it sounds a bit. Naive almost now, but I definitely thought from the beginning it it should be as big as it is now. It's interesting with Tiny, we're still in the early stages now and we're, um, you know, just two years in. But we definitely have global hopes and dreams. And from my work with Teach for All, which was helping get Teach First and Teach for America into, into about 50 countries around the world. I could see how these sort of models can really spread and can be very, you know, even with local changes, can really work in, in many places around the world, whether it's, you know, a big city like Mumbai or, you know, another country like Australia or any, any anywhere, basically. I, I've spent some time in Ghana getting a Teach First program started, lots of countries around the world. And I think when we were first starting Teach For All, I didn't necessarily expect that this model could work as well as it does in so many societies around the world. But I think the model of getting great talented people to work with children, which is, I think another core part of tiny is just a universal idea. That is uh, something that, that works anywhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, we're really looking forward to talking about Tiny in, in a little while. But um, just just last question on on education. I guess it's a slightly bigger question, but but how would you like to see the education system change in the UK? It's something that, like you, my parents were both teachers. Uh, my wife actually was on Teach First, so she spent a number of years in the education system. So I've seen it very closely and having obviously been through it and, and have some views on it. But, uh, but I'd love your take because you know it probably better than most.
0: Yeah, well, first, congratulations on marrying so well and uh, <laughs> marrying a, a Teach First alumni is definitely uh, something I'd recommend for anyone. But um, the second thing I'd say is, you know, I think the first thing is it, it's all about empowering the professionals. I think, you know, I, I used to have like very strong views on what makes a good school, what doesn't, different ways to structure the curriculum. I think as I visited more and more schools, actually, many of those views have weakened because I've seen truly outstanding world-class schools where the, the children are getting amazing education. That follow just so many different curriculums, so many different you know um, ethos and and values based. You know, I think any school has to have a very strong values base. That's a very very strong ethos. In many ways, I think a school is like an organization or like a business. Like you know, if if you don't know what you're trying to do with the kids, if you don't you know have a a clear way to bring the whole community together under similar values, then you're not going to be successful. You know, that could be all sorts of different values and ethos to be successful. I, I don't know if there's one. And then the other thing is to really respect the talent in, in that organization, just like any business, you know, and I think the best schools have, you know, leaders who really respect the employees, the, the teachers, the professionals and, and other t- other professionals in the, in that school, you know, give them a lot of autonomy, manage them really well, support them well, you know, give them a lot of support, a lot of development opportunities. I think that's what the best schools all seem to have in common
1: yeah absolutely and it's interesting a lot of people listening to this will have become they've facto teachers from the lockdown experience. How do you think that remote learning has changed the way that people will learn in the future because it's obviously had a pretty fundamental impact on on children
0: I mean the first thing is I would dearly hope it just continues to increase people's respect for teachers you know i mean i I would be see, say this of course after after the last twenty years but teachers are some of the most hardworking professionals. They care so much about the young people. They work so hard. They, you know, are really incredible in what they do day in day out, and I think so many non-teachers probably now appreciate that even more, seeing you know how difficult it is uh, to teach children, and just seeing you know how valiantly most of the teachers worked on Zoom and creating all sorts of amazing you know online lessons that they didn't have experience with before. So that's one thing. You know, I think it is it's a real big question, isn't it? Like, how are all of our lives going to be different after COVID? Now that we see so many things you can do online. I'll just give you one example. In my children's primary school, my uncle was in England at one point and gave a talk at the school about marching with Martin Luther King on Washington because they were studying civil rights movement and the class loved it. And now the teacher said, ooh, can you do a Zoom talk to my class this year about it? Because he lives in America. And, you know, maybe we can make this an annual event where your uncle talks to my class on Zoom. Like, that's just one little example, which, you know, I don't know if they would have thought of before COVID, but post COVID, it just is a norm- normal sort of idea. Yeah,
1: that's brilliant. And, and what you said there really resonates with me around appreciating the work that teachers do. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. My parents worked incredibly long hours as, as teachers. And I saw my wife when I I set up my business at the same time that, that my wife started on Teach First. And I was working crazy hours. You know, as, as as a startup founder does, and my wife was doing exactly the same, if not more, on some instances, because it's a vocation, and they really care. So, yeah, I I, I think a lot of people have had added added appreciation, and I think they all deserve a, a pay rise. Uh, to be honest with you, but no, thank you for sharing your your thoughts on that. I really wanted to get into your story as a founder. You know, a lot of people listening to this will be budding entrepreneurs, I'm sure, that could learn a lot from your story. So talking about Teach First, um, you spent 15 years building it. It's It's a charity that has worked with... Um, over a million children i'd love to guess learn a bit about your experience because you mentioned it's become you know a hugely successful business and a huge kudos to you i mean i think i read that you've raised over 300 million in public funding over 90 million from the private sector it's i think one of the it's the biggest graduate recruiter in the uk so you've had tons of success but i know firsthand from being a founder myself it's not all Plain sailing. So, do you mind telling us a bit about that scale up journey with Teach First and some of those maybe early challenges you had to overcome as CEO?
0: Yeah, no, sure. Um, as I mentioned before, I mean, certainly when we started, I think most people didn't think this would work. So, this was back in two thousand two. And I just remember I'd done a lot of work on the war for talent for businesses for McKinsey. And I then got on a project looking at how businesses could help education in London because many business organizations were worried about the poor state of London schools at that point and visiting the schools, and I wrote a business plan for this Teach First idea, and, you know, there was like four or five reasons. I remember people said it would never work, never be able to attract top talent to these schools. There was something about we want to train them very differently in a much more war for talent type way, you know, over summer training and and mix and match in different ways. We wanted to, um, you know, people thought, well, other teachers will never accept these new teachers in the school. Kids will never, you know, I remember a few people said, oh, kids don't want to be taught by top graduates or, you know, those sort of people, which is complete nonsense. Like there were some really fundamental things people thought would never happen. And then early on, I mean, just a I just remember going to visit, I think it was Oxford, either Oxford or Cambridge, and talking to one of the heads of career services there who said he had had uh, four or five graduates the previous year who had gone on to teach in state schools and all of them wanted to become priests. To give you one example, I remember him saying, our graduates have many, much better um, opportunities than to become a teacher. I remember that was his line. And this was 2002. So, you know, that was the sort of statement. And then when we went to government, you know, basically we needed lots of regulations changed in order to make this happen. So we needed secondary legislation changed. It was quite a big deal to train teachers differently, qualify them differently. And the first time we went to the minister at the time, as I said, you know, we thought we were getting support, but then he turned us down and he basically said, that's it. And I remember talking to a civil servant at the time. He said, well, you know, it's a good idea, but it's just not the right time for this. And I think that I often talk to people about that as being like this valley of death in Teach First, where it really looked like all the support we'd gotten from business community and others just sort of seemed to slightly evaporate away quite quickly. And it felt like that was the end. And, you know, I had a few mentors who really helped me at that moment. And at that point, we basically just tried to think of different ways to get through this problem. In the end, what happened is an advisor at 10 Downing Street, um, Andrew Adonis, who's now Laura Donis ended up you know helping supportive we made a few changes to the model we managed to get you know a bit of support from other areas of government and then about four or five months later we managed to change the minister's mind basically
1: yeah it says a lot about that again about that that kind of resilience and grit and and pushing through and yeah kind of been an easy time for you but uh uh, yeah i guess it's gone on to become such a successful company and uh yeah congratulations on all your your success with it as you look back on that time now you know 15 years are there particular things that you wish you'd have known looking back that would have helped you on that journey
0: yeah i mean there's quite a, a lot um I mean, I think the first is, you know, thinking broader about how to lobby government. I mean, never go into a meeting with a minister until, you know, unless you know what he's going to say beforehand. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I never should have been shocked by what he said at that meeting. I should have figured out before what he was going to say and gotten to support the right. So I think that the reason we were in that state was, was my fault in the end. As I mentioned earlier, you know, once we got started, you know, I just, I'd never, I'd never managed anyone before. I'd been a, um, associate, a low person at McKinsey. And so suddenly I hired, I remember, 15 people very quick. I was managing all them. And, and, you know, I was a complete mess as a manager that first year. I um, made all the startup mistakes, hiring wrong people for the wrong things, managing, not giving clear goals or targets, you know, just kind of focusing on. I think what we did have at that time was a clear vision and just a clear sense of wanting to get things done really quick, which was good. But, you know, we did in the messiest, most chaotic way imaginable, which probably took a few too many years off everyone's life than was necessary so those are all things which which i think i i learned from
1: how do you think he that the leadership points are really interesting i've spoken to a lot of founders and ceos on on this podcast and and so i think a number of them would say they weren't natural born leaders or or managers probably visionaries yes but the actual people management piece is not always you know something that comes naturally to entrepreneurs so how did you upskill yourself in in that regard
0: so I think some of it was through experience, through through learning over years. Part of it was um, having, you know, I'm a big fan of mentors and and coach and that's music um, to my more ears. Mentors, <laughs> yeah, more mentors than coaches, I'd say. You know, like coaches who I like mentors who have a lot of experience and and. What I've always found useful is I, I I feel like I have a almost a team of mentors, you know, and I, I feel like that's one area I've been pretty good at is is finding, you know, six or seven people who have lots of different types of experiences, who know a lot about what they're doing, who for some reason are willing to give me some time. And, um you know, and I think I've always prioritized that from the beginning. And I've always found that the best way to learn, like just, you know, having live problems, talking to people who have been through these situations before you know, hearing what they come up with and, and realizing not one, I, I don't think one person is the perfect mentor for everything, but really trying to like triangulate based on a few people and their experiences. I've always found that the best way to learn.
1: Great. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. I wanted to let you know about a podcast that I'm a big fan of, Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Former Downing Street advisor, Jimmy McLaughlin, interviews top entrepreneurs about where they are creating the jobs of the future, presented in the form of a prime ministerial briefing. Jimmy recently launched series two of the podcast, and I'd love to recommend a special episode, which I think you'll really enjoy. It's called Graphcore, the most exciting company you've probably never heard of. Founded by Nigel Toon in Bristol, Graphcore now employs 450 people across the world. It's also backed by Silicon Valley venture capital firm Sequoia, who have previously invested in Apple, Google, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Zoom, to name a few. If you'd like to listen to this fantastic episode, amongst many others, just search for Jimmy's Jobs of the Future wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I guess in in 2017, you you stepped down as CEO of of Teach First. As a founder, that can't have been an easy decision to make. So how did you know that it was the right time to step back and start some new ventures?
0: Yeah, no, it was really difficult. It was one of the most difficult decisions I'd say of my life. And so I left exactly on our 15th anniversary of starting. You know, I started thinking about it the 10th anniversary, and I probably should have left our 12th or 13th, I probably left it a few years too long. We had by our 12th year or so, we had reached our scale. So, you know, I I don't think it's possible, at least for the core program to grow much bigger. We're, We're sort of at the scale we need to be. And certainly I remember by about our 12th or 13th year, just thinking, okay, I'm giving the exact same speeches or talks over and over again. I remember like just for the first time. I always loved our summer training institute where we had thousands of people together and I'd spend six weeks just traveling around the country, meeting everyone, you know, having lunch, had lunch with your wife at some point. Yeah. yeah. I know she shook your hand
1: somewhere. Yeah.
0: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Like I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed meeting meeting our community and, you know, and meeting our funders and visiting schools. And like, to me, I always had a huge buzz at it. I remember like 12, 13 years, just still enjoying it, but thinking, you know, God, I've done this hundreds of times. Like it was just starting to get a bit old and thinking like, we've kind of done what I wanted to do. Not, not that we've achieved what we wanted to achieve in education, but I felt like what the teacher's organization had achieved what I thought. And we were also getting to the point where it needed a leader who was much more a better manager, I'd say a better organizer, like much more, you know, about running systems And it was sort of getting the point around our 13th, 14th year where the choice was, do I hire like almost a managing director, you know, senior COO who can kind of run everything and then I continue to do the external stuff. And then I was thinking that doesn't sound that exciting to me, to be honest, (laughs) like after um, just repeating the same thing over and over again. And also, you know, I was in, I was you know, my early 40s at that point and thinking, you know, well, I know I want to I felt like I want to do another startup and thinking, you know, now if I want to do it now is the right time to do it. And um, yeah, and I just so it was all that I think going on in my head, as well as the fact that very few founders, I think, leave at the right time. And, uh, you know, I think I was really conscious. I kind of wanted to buck that trend and leave at the right moment if possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, good for you. I think it's something that we've seen, you know, we we work with a number of vcs and and sometimes we get brought in because you know it's got to that point where things are stale at the the top table and, and companies need a change of direction and need fresh uh talent to kind of take the business onto the next level and it's always nice when a leader is self-aware enough to know that it's the time to step aside almost, you know, when you're on top and, you know, be a part of that, uh, bringing in the, the, the person to take the business on to the next stage. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure anyone listening to this that might be in that situation
0: will will take heed. And, you know, sorry, the one one of my mentors said at one point, he's like, do you, how many leaders do you know who were better in their second decade than they were in their first decade in a job? And, you know, there, you could very few, I'd say. you know, in America, presidents going to be presidents for eight years and there's very few CEOs or leaders who think, God, their second decade is CEO was so much better than their first decade. You know, if you haven't done it in the first 10 years, like when are you going to do it basically?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, that's really interesting. Well, I, I want to come on to talk about your your latest venture, Tiny. Do you mind just giving us a quick overview of what Tiny is? I'm sure our listeners will be fascinated to learn more.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, during my time at Teach First, we started secondary schools and then we placed teachers in primary and then we started working with early years teachers. And I I started getting really fascinated about preschool early years, like uh, younger than the age of five for a few reasons. One, you know, just reading lots of literature and just seeing more and more brain science come out and going to lectures. You just realize in the last 10 to 20 years, there's been so much evidence that we didn't know before about the importance of a good early years education. So I think that's one thing. I mean, the second thing is seeing From a parent point of view with three kids, I saw how difficult it is to find good early years care. My wife's a a paramedic and like finding good early years care is really difficult. I think also from the practitioner's point of view, it's a broken system. So most people who work in that space are earning minimum wage they're not getting great professional development. You know, it sort of started feeling like it was a bit like the early days to teach first, where there's a lot of people with great talent. Like I imagine your wife had huge talent as a teacher, but she might not have thought of teaching if it wasn't for teach first. Similarly, there's tons of you out there who have huge talent working and educating, working with and educating small children, but they don't necessarily think of it as a career or don't see it as a professional career or something where they can earn a good professional middle-class income and all that. And yet it's hugely important skills they have that people really want, so trying to think how can we fix this sector in a way that brings all that together and also has a tech focus to it, realizing that you know for this to work, we need to use tech in order to scale it so that that's sort of where the nucleus of tiny came from
1: amazing and and i I can totally see why i mean it's it's such a it's such a brilliant idea but it's a it's a very different business model to teach first, so what made you kind of decide you wanted to kind of pivot from the charity sector to a, a VC-backed scale-up?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I I was really clear I did not want to do another charity right after Teach First, and I wanted to do something VC-backed scale-up. Like, I, I actually early on was thinking that, and there was a few reasons, I think, and it's not necessarily, it's not really money, to be honest, like my, you know, and currently my salaries it was to teach first. And I, I you know, who, I think when you do a, a VC back scale, up, right, who knows if you ever make any money out of it or not. It was much more the fact that I wanted something that could grow and scale. And I have all sorts of worries. I could talk about the charity sector, where I think the charity sector is sort of set up in a way that makes it really difficult for organizations to scale and grow. Which is why you have these big problems that charities are supposed to solve that never get solved, I think. And I think the way boards are set up, they're they're very conservative. There's all this pushback. You know, I saw you know people don't like you talking about things in a way about scaling or it's a very um, modest. You you know you have to be much more modest in that sector. Whenever I would talk about growing or scaling, people would get very nervous or. You know, I felt like I was always pushing against my board in many ways or even some of my team and stuff about wanting to scale really fast because it's just not something done in that sector, basically. And I think also from board, I think people are very risk averse. You know, I, I would often say like with the VCs, at least if you are successful, you know, your board members get the advantage of your success with a charity. If you're successful, the board member don't get it the advantage of your success you know that goes to the young people that we're working with right so as one example for years i wanted to expand to grimsby because that's such an area that needs great teachers in so many ways and i remember visiting grimsby and just thinking oh you know visiting school thing we need to be here these you know no chair very very few national charities focus on grimsby they focus on london they focus on birmingham none of them focus on grimsby really and and they need to because this is a place that needs this intervention more than anywhere and I remember my board members just saying what every charity board member would say is, oh, why well, go to Grimsby? It's too difficult. It's too complicated. You know, it's too risky. You know, instead focus on Manchester or somewhere like that, which is fine. But the beneficiaries, those kids in Grimsby never get their voice at the table. So these were all things in my mind. And, and my thought was like, I want to build something that could scale really quick and, you know, can have a real global impact. And I thought I had a better chance of building something like that as a VC backed uh, startup.
1: And you've already had some, some great success with Tiny. you raised a, a $6.5 million round with, from top VCs, including Index. But it's also been a really challenging time for the world. So uh, you've done this in, uh, in challenging circumstances, which in itself is hugely impressive. How has the pandemic affected Tiny? And what are some of the key lessons that you've taken away from this past sort of 12 months?
0: It's been an amazing uh, 12 months, hasn't it? And it's, you know, um, I'm often thinking about and talking to my family about how are we all going to remember this time in the future? You know, first was, it's interesting, like of my staff team. I mean, there's huge numbers in my team who I've never met in person, which is so interesting and so so different.
1: Yeah, I've done the same. I think I think half of our team uh, we've hired in lockdown. So it's a, it's a weird sensation, isn't it? Working with people you've never met in person.
0: It really is. And I mean, it's just interesting that so from a, just an organizational point of view, I think you learned a lot that actually much more is possible remotely than you originally thought. I think I've learned a lot from there. And in some ways, there's good things about it. you have to manage people much better. You have to be much clearer on goals. You know, you can't just have a sense of how people are doing. Like, you know, it, I think it improves. I think in some ways remote working improves management and improves goal setting for tiny. What was interesting when we started, we were training all of our new child minders in person. So what we're doing is we're helping people start these small nurseries in their homes using child-minding legislation, and we're getting new people to start these small nurseries in their homes using tech, training them, supporting them. We're we're also a FinTech, so we have FCA license as well as a child-minding agency license with Ofsted. So we're allowed to register them, we're allowed to license them, we inspect them, we have these tiny wallets set up for them, we push out activities for them to do based on the early years curriculum, we do all sorts of stuff. And we were doing a lot of that in person before the um, lockdown. And we were doing like one week in-person training. And I remember thinking at the time, we were thinking, oh, we can't really do this virtually or through the app. You know, it needs that in-person element. And then when when COVID hit, we changed like everyone did. And we thought, well, we have to do it. Uh, you know, there's no other choice. And it was just incredible how I think we've been able to get most of this done really well through app-based. You know, I think there is some in-person elements which are going to be really focused on building a community and on um, culture that we still will want to do in the future. But 90% of it we can do remotely. And it's actually better for everyone. I think that's just such an interesting lesson we wouldn't have learned so quickly.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you've, you've just alluded to culture, which is one of the the hottest topics on on sort of my agenda and also a number of founders that we work with and i know you've brought together a really really talented team at, at tiny so people that have safeguarded national organizations i think sort of worked in in education and an ofsted and department of education so you've, you've got some real experts in the business what was important to you as you sort of started to shape the team and how have you gone about attracting such you know fantastic and skilled people
0: I mean, that was really important from the start because I don't have experience in, in the tech sector or in the product sector. And I really have limited commercial experience, actually, just with McKinsey. You know, at Teach First, we grew it quite quickly, but it was, it was a charity. And so I realized very quickly on I couldn't create this on my own or, or you know, I, I had um, skill Deficits in a number of areas. So I, you know, I spent about first of all I spent six months looking for my first co-founder, which which is Ed Reed, who was the CTO and co-founder of Graze, and he was CTO there for about ten years. And I must have met about thirty or forty people who were potential co-founders. And basically with that, I just spoke to everyone I knew in my entire network and said, do you know a fantastic CTO who might want to help get something started, who has the right values, has the right culture, is good. At, you know?" And I had like five or six things I was looking for in that person. And I just kept on chatting to everyone I could possibly think of to find that person. And someone who introduced me, someone introduced me to Ed and I just had lunch with him and I thought, okay, this is the guy. And I just wasn't, proper sell mode for a while to try to get him to join me. And he's, he's incredible. And then he helped bring on our third co-founder, John New, Newbald, who's our chief product officer, who has a, a ton of experience. He was a founder of 383 design studio and sold his stake. And he was, was looking for a startup opportunity and also great values based individual. And then together we, we spent a good year, the three of us looking for the COO, which we thought was the fourth sort of part we needed the last, last piece of that puzzle. And similarly, we spent a lot of time looking for that person. First of all, we we desperately wanted a woman because we didn't want four men to lead this. That, that would have been awful. We wanted someone with great commercial experience and someone who had the right values and, and really good management experience. And I mean, just an example, we we came close to giving an offer to one person. And then, you know, this person um, had great commercial experience and and great, really senior person. And we semi gave the person an offer. And then actually the three of us just kind of were sitting around having a drink. And there's so many things that person had said in interviews or when we started doing references. And the other thing with, with any of these people, I do lots and lots of references where I speak to people they worked with. That's something else I found really useful. So, you know, I probably spoke to seven or eight people who had worked with them before to really get a sense until they... I keep on trying to talk to as many people as possible until it starts getting to be a really clear picture. And the real picture of this person from references was like, "Eh, there's some values issues there that might not fit with what we're trying to build. So we ended up not giving her the offer. And then a few months later, we found Stephanie, who's exactly the perfect person and um, is a great person who has great experience at Uber and logistics and all sorts of other places and is a great fit. So, I mean, that, that's the lesson I had. It's like really prioritizing it. You know, to me, it was the number one priority because I didn't think I could build this on my own. Really being clear what you're looking for, you know, not allowing yourself to hire so-called talented jerks who never seem to work out, but ensuring that there's a good values fit in the senior team. And yeah, and that's the other lesson I have is, is from lots of experiences, just doing lots and lots of references and, and speaking, you know, not, not written references, but actually speaking to people. Um, references i find really important
1: it's really interesting it's actually a a fellow 40 minute mental guest sophie edelman he's he's at index now and the co-founder of multiverse she said very similar like the importance of deep and detailed reference taking was a huge part of i guess their their success in terms of bringing in top talent and and i i totally agree with that it's it's really interesting i'm you mentioned that you knew over lunch with your co-founder that that, that that was the person for you. What was it that stood out out of interest? Are there particular characteristics or things that made you you just sure that he was the right person?
0: Yeah. So with Ed, I mean, first of all, the person who recommended him was someone who had, you know, the way he described him felt really good. Like, And I, I knew this other person. And then we sat down for lunch. I think it was just a really easy conversation. Like he was in the right place in his life where he was looking for a startup to get in at the ground floor. His skill set was very complementary to my skill set. Like, he, you know, we have very different skill sets. I'd say completely different skill sets. So, you know, it wasn't like doubling up on anything I could already do. Instead, he brought something new to the table completely. You know, when I was asking what sort of startup you want to do next, what did you want? You know, he just spoke very clearly about wanting to build something clear values, like help the world. I think, you know, what he wanted out of this was similar to what I wanted. Yet he's also it was really clear. He's a very ambitious guy, you know able to make those difficult decisions. And just also, I think, talking to people who had worked with him before, he was just an incredible manager. I think that that was something that that stood out. So, you know, these are all amazing. Tips. And, you know, you just seem like, well, this is someone I'd really enjoy working with. So that's a good sign.
1: And you mentioned Stephanie, who I've had the pleasure of, of getting to know, who featured on our COO Secret series. I know for her, I, I knew this the culture is so important. And you've alluded to some of those, the, the importance of kind of getting that values alignment. But sort of how have you managed to maintain that during lockdown, that kind of remote working? How have you been able to bring people in, you know, and still sort of maintain that culture, which is clearly something that that is is you're doing very well?
0: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it is really important. I mean, we managed in November to do a, a three day offsite just when it was legal, <laughs> barely, which we did. You know, it's As a senior team, every Friday we have an hour and a half where we just all have beers over Zoom and just at least an hour of it or 40 minutes of it is just not, we intentionally don't have an agenda. And um, actually that I think is just really nice. we managed to do, I mean, these are just a few things. we managed to do lots of hikes, like the senior team or exco or the whole team, You're like whenever, whatever's legal. Like I do think getting to see people in person, at least for me, is, is really important to build a culture at some point. Like I'm not sure Zoom can be 100%. The way. But we have just try to do lots of things like lots of online social activities. We've tried, you know, every week we have a half hour where you get in a random Zoom room with five other people and you have to do an icebreaker thing together to chat to different types of people. You know, we just try to give values awards each quarter. I mean, we have our values and, and that's something we did at Teach First too, is every quarter you give an award, which is all voted on by the staff, you know, um, so you get nomination and the staff end up the whole employee group vote for who the winners are of, you know, who best exemplified each value. I mean, these are a few, I guess, example. you know, we have an all staff meeting every week where, you know, we try and and also have an element of it. That's ask me anything for me and the rest of the senior team. So, you know, I, I think it's, walking to the walk not just talking you know you can't just mention values and talk about culture like it, it is like every day every interaction constantly thinking about how do you further reinforce the values and it's hard in lockdown
1: I love that and I think it's something that's come up in conversation with a few leaders that that I, I've seen getting this right I think that the, the fact you, you open the floor to questions and it's asked me anything that in itself I think says a lot about your leadership style and I think from what we've seen of of talent in in the tech ecosystem, they want to work for companies and leaders who are very open, willing to be vulnerable, and you know, and answer questions, and and also giving them a voice, um, which is super important, I think, to particularly kind of ambitious Gen Z talent. So uh, yeah, it's great to see it going so well, and uh, I have no doubt, you know, your your culture will continue to evolve, and you'll continue to attract brilliant people we're sadly towards the end here brett and we've got three final quick wrap-up questions you're not going to be surprised that i am a big believer in the power of mentorship given the name of this podcast and you've already alluded to having multiple mentors so i thought i'd just ask a quick question around if you could be mentored by one person who would that be
0: that's such a difficult one isn't it I mean, part of the reason I find that such a difficult question, one of the most difficult, is I have yet to meet anyone who I think is the perfect mentor, and <laughs> okay. I feel like I'm going to give a cheesy answer to this, which is like totally uh, wrong. And see if you push me on it. But you know, I have so many people who I respect so much who have been such amazing mentors to me. But every one of them, there's elements of them I disagree with, <laughs> or I, I think, it. or I think, oh God, I wouldn't do things that way. You know, and and what I I guess I've learned is like that. You know, I I need I maybe. I find having a few mentors kind of triangulating, you know, what I'm hearing from each of them and then, you know, kind of using my judgment based on what they come up with is the best way that I find using mentors. Like, like I have yet to find one mentor. who I think um, that person is is like the godlike mentor who is the answer to everything. So fair enough. And in some ways there's no one, I'm just thinking like, you know, there's so many people I'd love, I'd love to have a chat with, you know, Bill Gates or Zuckerberg or whatever, <laughs> someone sort of who's grown and done something amazing. Like, um, you know, but I'm thinking, you know, I'm sure all those people would be people who would annoy me and I've had <laughs> difficulties with in other ways. Fair, like,
1: fair <laughs> enough. Well, if Bill and Mark are listening, uh, I'll get them to give you a shout to you and test that theory. <laughs> and given all the success you've had, I'd be interested to know, how, how do you want to be remembered at the end of your career.
0: I mean more than anything, I would just be really happy if, you know, more children get access to a great education because of my career. I mean that, you know, what what else as a legacy? What's a better legacy than that? You know, I mean that's something you know, through Teach First, I always wanted and and now through Tiny, that just hopefully a lot of children, future adults look back and think, actually, you know, my life's a lot better and I have more opportunities and I can make the most out of my own internal goodness, whatever, you know, is inside of me because I had a great education. And I got that because of a great childminder and a great teacher and a great head teacher.
1: That's uh, what a brilliant answer. And and I, I know you're, you've already uh, impacted the lives of so many children and adults as well as a result so um yeah no thank, thank you for that and uh, and finally uh before we finish up for any listeners thinking about creating a startup uh, like you've done what one final piece of advice would you leave them with
0: i i think it's it's always more about execution than idea isn't it so i know people often spend a lot of time trying to think of the perfect idea and the idea is worth very little it's all about execution and just you know to, you know the Most successful people I see just never give up, deal with, you know, difficulties along the way. Sometimes you will be turned around and feel like there's no future. And I think the difference I've seen with the most successful entrepreneurs is when they get to that instance, they still keep on pushing and finding a way through. While 90% of people who are maybe more sane would give up at that point. And I think that to me is the most important entrepreneurial lesson I've seen.
1: Thank you very much, Brett. That's a brilliant place to end it. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being a great 40 minute mentor. We wish you all the very best with Tiny for the rest of the year and beyond.
0: Thanks so much, James. Thanks.
1: Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.